Uh, and so we've got some ushers in the back with some Bibles for you. Just keep your hand raised, and uh, we'll make sure you get a Bible in your hand while everyone's turning to John chapter 13. Um, I've heard rumors that there, there's something happening this afternoon, and I promise you'll get out of here by 3 o'clock. And um, so uh, the, um, the, the thing I, I mentioned in first service, I shared that, uh, you know, prayer, prayer is not so much about changing God's heart as much as prayer is to come in line with God's heart, okay? And so therefore, pray the patriots lose. So we, <laughs> so we do obviously have some patriots fans in church. I mentioned at the first service, and a gentleman came up to me after the first service and said, uh, so Pastor Brian Larson at Calvary Chapel down the street, he likes patriots fans. I'll be there next week, so... I will be removing my tithe also. <laughs> so, okay, well. Actually, I, would, um, I had a great conversation with, with one of the guys, uh, Doc and Mary Gelso. They're big Patriots fans, and they were sharing me just some of the articles and stuff that's coming out in regards to the, those players that are Christians of faith for the Patriots, as well as for the Eagles. In fact, there's so many. Um, Christianity Today actually had a big article on uh, the Christians that are part of the Philadelphia Eagles, and um, they're actually, their, their nickname um, is the, uh, oh gosh, uh, the, uh, the Eagles of Prey, instead of, you know, like Prey. Oh. <laughs> Apparently you didn't appreciate that as much as I did. Um, yeah, so I digress. Let's ignore everything about football from here on out that I've just said, and, and let's get back into what's important. <clears throat> Go Eagles. So, um, if you would, if you guys are not familiar and you haven't been part of Sierra Bible Church uh, and you're visiting, we, we have a tradition, and the tradition is to honor the reading of Scripture by standing. And so I want to invite you, if you're able, to, to stand this morning, to please stand with me as we read from John chapter 13, and uh, starting in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy what he needed for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, 
but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is the word of the Lord. And everyone said? You may be seated. This morning's message is on betrayal and love. <clears throat> we are, we've come to the place where Judas is now revealed as the one who will betray Jesus. The disciples were not totally aware of it at the time, as you've noticed, uh, but you and I, we are. And so in the text, we see that Judas is the one who is going to turn Jesus over to the Pharisees to be murdered. And in this regard, we see now for the third time in the Gospel of John this word troubled. The first time, Jesus was troubled at the unbelief when Lazarus passed away. That's the first time. The second time was in chapter 12 when Jesus finally says the hour has come. The time for him to die upon the cross, to be arrested, the hour has come. And it tells us again that Jesus was troubled. And here we see this bookmark in verse 21. Jesus is troubled in his spirit, but then in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, let not your hearts be troubled. That word troubled in its definition, and we've defined this two other times in the past, means to have mental or emotional stress. As part of its definition, the words agitated, unrestful, disquieted, and unpeaceful are part of its uh, definition. I think of as I was reading this, it popped in my mind, this unrestful, disquieted, and unpeaceful is way of definition. And painting the picture of what Jesus was feeling and understanding that this man that he had loved for the last several years is going to turn him in to be murdered for the sins of the people. And it brought back recollections and memories for me of when my father, my biological father, was arrested. I was 12 years old, and he was arrested for shooting his girlfriend in the face here in Truckee, California. And he was sentenced to 10 years. Uh, some of that time was done down south, and the majority of it was done in uh, Folsom Prison just over the way. And I remember the very first time I visited my father in prison. It was a loud place. It was an unrestful place. And, and during the kind of, you know, letters being written back and forth at that time between my father and I, he, he would share with me that the struggle with being in prison is, is the fact that it's never quiet. There's no rest. And I, 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 I remember when he was released. I, uh, he was released, I think, just a, a year or two years prior to me getting married. And I was 21, 22, I think, at the time. And I remember him telling me when he was released, his biggest struggle with now being free was the silence. He had grown so accustomed to screaming, agitation, noise, uh, unrestfulness, uh, fights, defending yourself, that to lay in bed at night in Truckee, California in silence was an impossibility for him. It was difficult. And this is what is kind of included in what Jesus is feeling, an unrestfulness, a depression, a type of anxiety because of this betrayer. And then again, we're going to get into this a little bit more at the end, but then he says, don't, don't let this happen to you. In a sense, Jesus is saying, let me be the one that carries the agitation and the unrestfulness and, and the lack of peace. Let me be that for you. 
Let's talk about this Judas here for a moment, the one who betrays Jesus. Judas is known historically as the betrayer of all betrayers. He's revealed. One commentator says that Judas is the most notorious traitor, both the Bible and in all of human history. That was Judas Iscariot. Judas had the incredible privilege of being one of the 12 closest followers of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. Yet, inconceivably, after more than three years of living constantly with the incomparably perfect Jesus, observing the miracles he performed and hearing his teaching, Judas betrayed him to his death. The dark, tragic story of Judas reveals the depth of evil to which the human heart is capable of sinking, even in the very best of circumstances. I was listening to a sermon this week uh, to just, sometimes I'll, at the end of studying, I'll, I'll turn on a YouTube video of a pastor I like or appreciate, and, and this one pastor said in the video, I thought it was quite a statement, that Judas probably was the most evil man in the history of the world. The most vile, the most darkest of hearts. Thinking about this as a pastor, there really is nothing, there's really nothing more heartbreaking, more crushing, more troubling than to pour your heart into somebody to serve them and to love them and then to have them betray you. I can tell you at least probably a handful of stories of young kids that I ministered to in youth group. Man, when you are doing youth ministry, you are sacrificing body, mind, and soul, let me tell you. And the things that, that a youth pastor does to keep up with kids, I know, I know my body couldn't do it today because I can't keep up with my four-year-old. So, But... I can tell you countless stories of, of young men and women who, who, when they graduated high school, said, all I want to do is serve Jesus. Only for a year or two years in college to go by for the ways of the world and the, the doctrine of the culture to infiltrate into their hearts for them to eventually say, I'm no longer going to walk with Jesus anymore. It's heart-wrenching. It, it, it's painful to see someone that you love turn. And this is Judas. Judas was trusted. I think it's something we need to understand. Judas was, was part of the group. He was included. He, he was a guy you'd look at and say, yeah, Judas is one of our guys. You can see it in the text. They don't even fully know it's Judas. They're, they're so, they're so like, like kind of weirded out by it. They're like, wait, well, who's he talking about? And then he says something to Judas, and Judas leaves. They still don't understand it's Judas. And we know Judas was trusted because Judas was in charge of what? The money. You don't put people in charge of money you don't trust, do you? No. True. I told Brad uh, Franklin this morning, no, no, no worry here for you. <laughs> you put people in charge of money that, that you trust. So the, the disciples didn't see reason to, to see that, that he was the great betrayer, the betrayer of all betrayers. In fact, we see in Scripture that Judas... Judas was seen so terribly that whenever his name appears in the New Testament of the apostles, it always appears last. He's always last in the list. And when Judas is mentioned by name, he's always identified as the traitor. It's never just Judas, it's Judas the traitor. In John chapter 13, verse 11, Jesus says of Judas that he's not clean. Later, the, the guilt of Judas... History tells us that Judas felt so guilty that, that once he betrayed Jesus and, and he realized what he had done, that Judas went back to the Pharisees, turned his money back in and said, I can't do this. And, and the Pharisees said, well, we're not going to, we can't just take this money. It's blood money. 
And so the Pharisees went out and they bought a field, potter's field. And later we're told, uh, I think it's in my Acts, uh, it says Acts, um, I think I have the, the text here wrong on front. Someone said I did, but it looks to be the same there to me. But after changing his mind, Judas, turning in the silver, went to that field and he hung himself. So filled with guilt and shame at what he had done, he hung himself. And Acts, the book of Acts tells us, and this is scripture, but it describes the horror of what happened to Judas, that he fell headlong and his guts gushed out. We're told that Judas accompanied Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He knew Jesus, but he never gave Jesus his soul. Rather, Judas instead was interested in wealth, power, and prestige, and Jesus was the gateway to this. Jesus was, was a source of, of power. In fact, I, I kind of look back at the Gospels here now, and I, I look at the, the conversation between James and John, and they're, they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And yet Judas is in the back, kind of wringing his hands, thinking, it's going to be me. It's going to be me. Judas wasn't interested in a relationship with God. He wasn't interested in religion. He, he, he wanted wealth and power. In fact, the Earlier, it tells us that he actually helped himself to some of the money and the money back. And the last straw for Judas, I think, as he grew increasingly disenchanted with Jesus, was when Jesus, in the last chapter, bows down to his disciples' feet, washes their feet, and says, I've given you this example. The example to rule is to actually serve. To lead is to wash somebody else's feet. Imitate me in this. And then he starts speaking of dying for the people. The point where, where they want to make him king, and Jesus pushes it away. And I think here Judas is, is he's disenchanted. There's no way this man is going to lead me to power. This man's going to lead me to death. And so he goes and he betrays his master. There's a contrast in here, though. And it's that contrast of, of the rejection of Judas to the deep love that John has for Jesus, that Jesus has for John, and then this new commandment that's given to us to love one another. In fact, you can see it, first of all. Take a look at verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. I, I brought this picture for you. This is very similar to what this supper would have looked like, okay? I know it's a weird picture. I looked for some cool ones. It was super difficult. Google's not as, as thorough as you'd think it would be sometimes. And, um, and so you see the U-shape there. That's the table. When they, when they ate, they literally laid down. You know, we were talking like, we're going to fill ourselves. We're going to stuff ourselves. We don't have to worry about ever getting up. We just eat on one side, eat the food, and turn over and lay on the other side and just let the digestion occur. And you can see the host, which is where Jesus would have been, would have been there, right there in the middle, right in front of us. And on, on the other side was John. And then we see on this other side was Judas. The second honor was to John. The first honor was was to Judas. This was an honor for Judas to sit where he was sitting. And then across the way, um, you can see there's Peter. And, and, and so you see this in front of you. You can see it play out in the text, right? One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John. He's reclining. He's listening to what Jesus is saying. And the guy all the way across from the table, that's Peter. Peter says, Simon Peter mentioned to John, ask Jesus, who's he talking about? Peter's leaning over. What did he say? 
So you can see this dynamic that's occurring here. And, and, and so you see this love. You see John is, is nestled into the bosom of Jesus. He's right there at the meal. He, he's, he's got this firsthand encounter, which shows you the legitimacy of, of the text that's before us. This is a firsthand witness that you would believe and Jesus Christ being the Son of God, that you would be in relationship with him. He was right there, nestled in to the bosom of the Christ. And then Jesus says, the one that is going to betray me is the one that I will give this morsel to. The morsel was a piece of unleavened bread, which was dipped into a mixture of bitter herbs, vinegar, water, salt, crushed dates, figs, and raisins. To be given this morsel by the host was to be singled out for a special honor. Jesus thus made a gesture of honor towards Judas, showing kindness right up to the bitter end. Judas spurned Christ's final gesture of love to him, just as he has had all previous ones for three years, and at that moment the day of salvation ended for Judas. Hell arrived as Satan then entered into him. That morsel given to Judas as an act of love. This rejection is painted by John purposely. If you look at uh, verse 30 at the end, it says immediately Judas went out after Satan had entered him. And then John just uses these simple words, it was night. It was night. Not just to describe the evening, that it was dark outside, but to let us know that this rejection was an act of darkness. And that Judas's heart had grown completely dark and now was under that control of darkness. You see, the contrast between the light of love and the darkness of Judas's rejection and this troubling spirit that Jesus feels, he's agitated, he's at unrest, he feels probably an anxiety in him. Have you ever sat down and, and tried to enjoy a good meal with friends, but something's looming and you just can't quite enjoy the meal because that thing is hanging over your head? And at this meal, Jesus introduces a new commandment. More contrast to the rejection that Judas is bringing. And that true commandment, that new commandment is what? Love one another. What's interesting about that, though, is if, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know anything about God, it's not love one another is not a new commandment. So why is this commandment new? Does anyone know? Class participation, as Brad Beers always loves to do at Sunday night. As he loved us. Jesus is now saying, you know, you know you're supposed to love one another, but the new commandment is, here's the example. Right? When you think about this love for one another in the Bible, there's a few things here that, that I want to cover. One is, true love is always on the inside. You have to actually feel it, right? Uh, Jesus says things like, blessed are the pure in heart. And Luke, he, he says... Um, there's an honest and good heart. That's the good soil. Romans 10, for the heart one believes. Hebrews 10.22 says, we draw near to God with a, a true heart. And 2 Timothy says, flee youthful passions and call on the Lord from a pure heart. Like the love that we should have for one another should be a pure, deep, honest love. And it's a heart that will love like Jesus loved. One pastor says, says like this, we are those who are enabled we are those who are enabled to obey the greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, unlike the unredeemed who hate God and love themselves. Christian 
Christians love the Lord and they love each other. And this kind of love, we're told, especially in the sense of service that we saw last week, this kind of love, one another, is deeply sacrificial. In fact, D.A. Carson, great theologian, says the new commandment is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate and profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. The more we recognize the depth of our own sin, the more we recognize the love of the Savior. The more we appreciate the love of the Savior, the higher his standard appears. The higher his standard appears, the more we recognize in our selfishness, our innate self-centeredness, the depth of our own sin. With a standard like this, no thoughtful believer can ever say on this side of the Perusia, the second coming, I am perfectly keeping the command perfectly keeping the basic stipulation of the new covenant. How are you doing at loving one another? Right To add to that, the Bible tells us that love is, is in 1 Corinthians 13, patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable, it's not resentful, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, it rejoices with truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures and it never ends. Love, I think, in its essence, it's, it's fast to apologize and ask for forgiveness. It's fast to grant forgiveness. Like, the mark of the church should be the mark of love. And if you have not love for one another, what you do outside of the church matters little. It doesn't matter at all. Right? The impact the church has in its community and globally will be hinged the amount of love that we feel towards one another. If you can't love the people in this room, how in the world are you going to love people outside of this room? Are you a marked Christian by your love? Do you hope all things? Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you not envy? Are you arrogant? Are you rude? At this point, it's pretty quiet. The idea of love in 1 Corinthians, do you believe all things? Do you hope all things? I remember early on in ministry, being trained with these real sticky situations or someone accused someone else of something. And, and I remember, well, what do we do? What do we do about this? And I remember my pastor says, until you get all of the truth, until you know exactly what's happened, hope all things and believe all things. Think the best. Give people the benefit of the doubt. But you know, there's a caveat to this love for one another that I, I find, uh, especially after studying it this week, uh, kind of scary. There's a part of this not only, not only to the regard that, that am I failing, but then, then what Jesus adds to this idea of love and maybe the lack of love we have for each other, the heaviness of this, and that's in, in my last point here, in number seven that was on the list there a minute ago. The mark of a true believer is love, and the world has been given the power to judge whether or not you actually have that love. Listen to how John MacArthur puts it. Better than I could put it. The world will know that you that we belong to him by our love for one another. Listen carefully. These are important words for a guy like me. The church may be orthodox in its doctrine, vigorous in its proclamation of the truth, but that will not persuade unbelievers unless believers love each other. In fact, Jesus gave the world the right to judge whether or not someone is a Christian based on whether or not that person sincerely loves other Christians. Or as Francis Schaeffer writes, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture, 
In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. That is pretty frightening. Jesus turns to the world and says, I've got something to say to you. On the basis of my authority, I give you a right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love he shows to all Christians. In other words, if people come up to us and cast into our teeth the judgment that we are not Christians because we have not shown love toward other Christians, we must understand that they are only exercising a prerogative which Jesus gave them. There is no reason for the Truckee community to step into this building if you do not know how to love the person to the left of you or to the right of you. You know, there, there's something I've, I've learned. I learned it from James Gordon a few years ago. You know, I kind of, I grew up in a rough home. And, and whenever James, he, for those who don't know James, he's a missionary we support, and he's a great guy. And whenever I get off the phone with him, and this has been this way throughout our whole friendship. Whenever, whenever I've, I've seen him for a little while or, or we've chatted, he always says this. He always says, I love you, man. I remember initially, a few years ago, when he'd say it, like, okay. <laughs> but now I've come to this place where I'm like, I love you too. I love you. And just because I verbalize it doesn't make me less masculine. I hope. <laughs> kind of given up worrying about it. But there's something about just telling somebody, I love you. Not just your wife. I mean, I've taken over the last several years with my four children. I, I will grab them occasionally when they're running throughout the house, causing chaos, chucking toys everywhere, and, and just bang, 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 right? And I'll grab them. And I'll say, Jonah, come here. I grab them. I pull them over. And I look at them. And I say, I want you to know something. I love you. And occasionally, it's super beautiful. I love it, man. I love it. Every now and then, my kids will be playing on their tablet or something. They'll be watching some stupid cartoon. And I'll hear Jonah go, Dad! Go, yeah, I love you. Thanks, buddy. And that's the end of it. Peyton does it. He'll do it. Jolie will do it. To just express love. You see that family love, but it should exist in the church. I mean, if I challenged you right now to look to your neighbor right now and look at him and say, I love you, how would you feel? Try it. Yeah. All right, that's enough. Before we get carried away, we just start crying, hugging on each other. Yeah, a few days early. The reality is that Jesus is, is encouraging us in, in the darkest of moments. His soul's troubled. And he's given us a new commandment, a new example to, to love each other just as he has loved us. That's the encouragement. You know, there's a few other lessons we learn from Judas in this moment. First of all, Judas, Judas is history's greatest example of lost opportunity and wasted privilege. 
One pastor says he heard Jesus teach day in and day out. Further, he had the opportunity to personally interact with him. He witnessed firsthand the miracles Jesus performed, that Jesus proved he was God in human flesh, yet Judas refused Christ's invitation to exchange the oppressive burden of sin for the yoke of submission to him. Lost opportunity. He's the best illustration of the danger of loving wealth, power, and prestige. You know, the Bible says actually more about the love of money than it does about the sins of sexual infidelity. The danger of wealth, the danger of power will turn you from God. Many people will say, love is the root of all evil. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He illustrates that. Judas also teaches us to examine our motives as Christians. We're going to take communion. This is a good time to examine your motives. Why do you follow Christ? See, Judas was interested in what Jesus provided rather than Jesus himself. Do you have a real love for Christ or do you enjoy him for just all of the good things that he gives us? Judas also shows us the immeasurable patience and mercy and kindness of Christ. In the darkest of moments, in the darkest of moments, Jesus still is extending graciousness to him. In fact, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and the mob comes to arrest him, Jesus still addresses Judas as friend. Judas also teaches us, this is why we need much prayer as a church, that Satan is active and at work amongst God's people. One thing that we've noticed in the last few years of, of, of growth and God doing great things, there's some weird stuff that has been happening over the last couple of years, just weird spiritual stuff. Don't, don't, don't let it be lost on you as a church that, that God is making us a light in the darkness and, and the darkness wants to overcome the light. So the encouragement to pray and to love more and to do more and to serve more and to, to smile more and to, to say that people need a relationship with Christ is, is needed. Satan wants to take us down. In fact, he tells Peter, Peter, you know Satan's actually asked for you. And the thing that Satan has actually asked for is to sift you as wheat, to grind you down to dust. But then Jesus says one of the best lines in all of the Bible Take heart, I'm praying for you. Be encouraged that this love that God shares is a love for you. He, he's, he's in the kingdom of heaven right now praying for you. He's praying for our church. He's praying for our community. He's praying for your pastors. He's praying for your elders and your deacons. He's praying for children's church. He's praying for our little children. He's praying because he has a deep love for us. But most importantly, out of all of this, for me at least, and, and maybe I overemphasize this, I, I don't know. The most important thing I see in here is, is Judas shows us there's nothing sinful men can do to thwart the sovereign will of God. This is just one of many lessons in Scripture where Jesus shows us that the great tragedy and pain and suffering and the, the heart of, of troubleness that Jesus is feeling, this agitation. Jesus is all the while teaching us that through this darkness will come redemption. Through pain and sorrow will spring joy. 
This tragedy, through this tragedy will come triumph. Satan's apparent victory in reality will be his ultimate defeat. Judas is a lesson to us that, that no matter what we're experiencing, no matter what darkness we, we may feel, that God will use it. And, and I, I at times share my past in part that, that you'll know about it and just kind of understand that I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So I, I don't know a lot of all the Christian things that a lot of Christians are supposed to do because I didn't grow up that way. So forgive me and have grace. But it's also a story of, of for me that I look back and, and, and see the things that I experienced as a child and I know that God uses these painful moments in life to spring forth goodness. I don't know what your suffering is. I don't know what your suffering will be, but I know that God will use your suffering. And Judas teaches us that. His soul is troubled, it says. And then Jesus says, but don't let your soul be troubled. Be at peace. And know that I am defending you. As Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Thank you, God, that I don't have to play church because you're going to build church. You're going to make this people the people you want. And you're going to love us with a perfect love. And then we're going to imperfectly love each other the best of our ability. And we're going to mess up and we're going to forgive a lot because that's what love is. It's forgiving. It's gracious. How many times should I do that? 70 times 7. How often is your mercy new? Every morning. And this morning we get the opportunity as a, as a family, as a family of believers who love each other to partake in communion with one another. So I want to ask those that I asked to help with communion, come forward if you could. And, and they're going to hand out the cup and the bread, and I'm going to introduce something to you, and, and we'll partake together. So please hold on to the juice and the bread until... Uh, until we're complete. Um, and can I have Joe, Joe Casey, can you help Joe hand out? And then um, looks like it. Al, will you help Wayne, please? See, you've been here long enough. I just ask you to do stuff. <laughs> and go ahead and just start handing out the bread first and then the juice. And um, we get to partake in communion. It's a commandment. It was introduced at this meal. And when Jesus says, when Jesus says you partake in communion, he says, remember. Everyone say remember. remember. We as people have the memory as far as how good God is of a gnat. We have the ability to forget the goodness of God, right? We do. And as soon as something bad happens, we, we, we question him, we, we question his goodness, and, and we forget some of the things that Jesus has written. So Jesus says, at this supper, he says, listen, listen, here's my body. Here's, here's my blood shed for you. He's, he's foreshadowing this reality. Remember, remember, remember. Remember the gospel. Preach the gospel. And so this morning when we partake in communion, I, I have this video I showed our community group a, a couple years ago. And um, it's, it's by a, um, two gentlemen named Shane and Shane. And for our last... Before we partake in communion, to get our hearts right, I want, you to, I want you to listen to this song and what's in it, and I want you to hear from the Lord in regards to how, how our soul can be troubled, but how God is in the trouble, the agitation, and the lack of peace, and sometimes the anxiety. And I want it to, to minister to you, and then when it's over, we'll partake as a family together, okay? So um, with that said, if uh, you could go ahead and cue up the video.
affliction momentary not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there but all of it is totally meaningful every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to 
to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't, don't say it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart, but take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach His Word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for. remember if Allie and I were in our first year of marriage, if we were dating, we, um, we got to, close to probably 15 years ago, we, we got to see Shane and Shane play in a small park, about 50 people. And um, Allie and I were actually just talking about them the other day, and a day and age where there are so many Christian bands that, that are pushing out songs for people to sing that are void of meaning in Scripture. Shane and Shane have been, I think, exemplary in singing songs that are scripture. As you see here, they actually have an album. It's just on. It's just basically them singing through the Psalms. And um, you know, there there's this hope in me as I I myself sit as a family and listening to the song that that we have this abandonment into the loving arms of God that is so beautiful that, that we abandon ourselves into loving each other and that the world has changed because of it. Someone came up to me afterwards. They were asking me, I've never thought of the world having the ability to judge us. I've never thought of that. I said, yeah, it's kind of a heavy statement. And I shared with them, if you study early Rome, when Christianity was being birthed and when Christianity took over Rome, one of the things that the Romans didn't fully understand, that swayed them to belief, was these people really love each other. If you remember in the book of Acts, they just they were like at the point of, my stuff is your stuff. As long as we're, we're together in this worship of God. And so Jesus institutes this supper for us to do it often and to do it in remembrance that he wants to commune with us to love us, and for us to love one another. You know why we love one another? Because you are the Imago Dei. You've been made in the image of God.
you bear his mark. And to love each other is to love God. Dear Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice, which not only atones and forgives us of our sin, but draws us into right relationship with you and makes our lives in this life more of a blessing than we could ever imagine. And then, Lord, the promise of eternity and relationship with you and one another. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may partake. His body broken for us. The, uh, the word amen literally means let it be so. So in the name of Jesus we say amen. amen. Have a great afternoon.